0: And welcome to these audio excerpts from session seven of the West Vic PHN COVID-19 Pandemic Response Project ECHO series. This session was recorded on Thursday, the 14th of May at 730 am. Hello, good morning, everyone, and welcome to our Project ECHO COVID 19 pandemic response series. So, uh, agenda for today, continuing our conversation about paediatrics. So, we'll be providing our infectious disease update, considering kids and COVID, non COVID infection in kids and PPE use through winter. And we'll also be hearing about a paediatric update on uh, COVID, non COVID infections. Um, potentially some of the issues that might be arising in regards to return to school and um, and issues that might um, present or, or or fail to present due to our new normal um, measures in primary. So it's been nine weeks since the COVID-19 pandemic was declared and we're now at a time that I think we all feared we'd be knee-deep in COVID presentations and delightfully that's not the case. We're amongst a fortunate few uh, group of countries who are now heading into this um, time where we're able to relax measures um, but still proceeding um, with the recognition that we haven't eliminated the disease and that clusters um, will break out. So what does this mean uh, as we move forward until an effective vaccine arrives? Where are the weak points in our system for COVID outbreaks? And what role will primary care be playing um, to address these weak points or support these weak points? How can we safely continue to play a role in triage and assessment of non-COVID fever and respiratory infections through winter? And with decreased face-to-face visits, what issues will emerge in vulnerable populations due to illness missed or delayed presentations? So with the latter two themes in mind, we continue our focus on paediatrics and we'll revisit the systems and processes in place in primary care to ensure safer care for fever and respiratory illness with an emphasis on the under fives. We hope to further our early discussions about potential distress in children and pressures upon families during this time and the issue of safely providing care in the newborn period. Uh, So with that, our learning outcomes remain the same to deepen our understanding to you know, consider the real world experience of, our, of um, implementing these guidelines into the real models of care in uh, regional Western Victoria and to build our knowledge of current referral pathways and engage in a community of uh, learning. So, I would like to introduce our panel again. We were joined by Associate Professor Deborah Freeman, ID physician, Dr. Chris Cooper, Director of Apologies, Director of Pediatrics, Bowen Health, Matt Dixon, West Victoria PHN Director of Special Projects, who will be providing the PHN update today, and Dr. Kate Graham, GP Health Pathways Lead Editor. And so thank you for um, uh, introducing yourself in the chat. I'd like to welcome everyone coming in from the diverse regions of West Vic PHN. So, um, with that, um, I would now like to hand over to our first presenter, Deb Freeman. Thanks, Deb. Good morning, everyone. so a very quick update.
1: Um, in terms of overall in Australia, we've got just under 7,000 cases in Australia. Victoria. The doubling time for both Victoria and Australia is in excess of 40 days. Children represent, there are 291 cases in children under 19 years of age, and that represents 4% of the total in Australia. In terms of new cases, there was one new case in Ballarat diagnosed in the last few days, a symptomatic patient, And we had one increase in Geelong, although this patient is asymptomatic and we're unsure if this is a false positive. There have been some new cases identified through the Blitz, although very few asymptomatic cases. But there have been a few new clusters which everybody would be familiar with, including the Meatworks and most recently a McDonald's. In terms of school returning, in the next two to four weeks, we're going to have children returning to school and consequences of children returning to infection will probably be known in the next four to six weeks and beyond that time frame. Um, I wanted to quickly comment on testing. Um, as everybody knows, we, use, we have traditionally been using an oropharyngeal and nasopharyngeal swab. Um, two things to mention one is that locally our initial swab which was sort of like a long cotton bud has been replaced with a new swab which is called a kangjian so it's a, a k-a-n-g-j-i-a-n swab which is a green top swab it's different from the previous swabs it's a broader swab and it doesn't go all the way into the nasopharynx so for using this green top swab we um we Uh, suggesting that this should be used as an intranasal rather than nasopharyngeal swab but you can still do the oropharynx with that same swab. There's been increasing um, literature about the use of saliva saliva for testing um, indicating that it's perhaps as good and possibly better than nasopharyngeal swab. It's probably slightly too early to recommend that on a wide scale but one of the interesting things that's come out of the the research into the use of saliva is the use of what we call pooled saliva especially if you were trying to do a survey of a large group of people let's say a school class a football club um, a nursing home you could get pulled saliva from 30 people and do a single PCR on that pooled saliva to determine if there was any coronavirus there at all there will be more on that with time and this is just all new stuff that's emerging um, asymptomatic um, screening, while that was occurring during the blitz, um, there it's, there's less of that happening now. It still remains a vexed question. So mathematically, it doesn't stack up. If you look at the low prevalence in the community, and identified a few false positives already. Um, um, I wanted to quickly mention the... Um, notification now of some seriously ill children internationally so probably about 100 children the first estimate said 50 now it's thought to be about 100 children in New York with multi-system inflammation which sort of looks Kawasaki like or perhaps like a toxic shock syndrome in New York they've been they initially confirmed two deaths but they're now reclassifying some other deaths and I think there might have actually been five deaths There are also cases reported in the United Kingdom, in France, Italy, and Spain. What sort of puts all these countries together is that they're all countries of extremely prevalence of coronavirus infection. Um, A couple of specifics about this illness is that it occurs about six weeks after exposure to the virus, so it's not in the acute setting response to coronavirus infection. And the children typically present with a rash, a fever, a red tongue, diarrhoea, weakness, possibly lymphadenopathy. And some of the terrible consequences include heart failure, coronary artery, aneurysm. Now, they occur in a very high prevalence setting. It's hard to know how that translates into a low prevalence setting like Australia. But we still know that this is a very rare consequence. So we probably need to keep that in mind. Obviously, last week we talked about coronavirus infection being very mild in children. I can understand how this would sound like a contradiction of that, but this is still a very rare consequence. Um, In our setting, um, we still have to recommend PPE when you're managing children with symptoms that are consistent with possible coronavirus infection. Although this is a low prevalence setting, I think at, at at a minimum, a surgical mask and hand hygiene and gloves. Somebody, one case in your clinic. Did that mean closure of the clinic for two weeks? We should clarify. The closure for two weeks is only in the case where all of the major people in your clinic are considered close contacts of that case, and that was um, that is therefore the sort of underpinning behind trying to separate your clinic into different zones. So, for example, if you had a child that came in or an adult that came in that you took into a separate room that you tested or examined and they were later found out to be positive for coronavirus, that would not close your clinic unless you had them waiting in a waiting room where other people were exposed and where all of the other staff were exposed. So it's all about whoever is a close contact of the person that's infected. If there were a staff member from your clinic who were confirmed to be positive, positive with coronavirus and they had had contact with everybody that would be the situation in which you may need to close for two weeks because everybody would have and i think that was probably oh and just one other thing somebody had asked about whether people need to self-isolate while they're waiting for swab results so Just to clarify, if somebody is being screened because they are symptomatic, they absolutely need to remain isolated until their results are notified. Results are notified whether they're positive or negative. The only case where results are not notified if they're negative was in the setting of asymptomatic screening. There obviously has been a significant backlog in the last week of results coming through to doctors which is very frustrating for doctors and patients alike, and some labs are performing better than others. Um, We are told that there's probably in the order of tens of thousands of pending cases, pending swabs that haven't been um, analysed yet. So I'm hoping that by the end of this week some of that backlog will resolve, but we acknowledge the frustration that people must be feeling.
0: Okay, thanks, Deb. And um, look, apologies there. I think that um, there might have been a few pauses, so I'm not sure what kind of delay we have. So um, we'll seek to rectify that to give you a better signal um, when Deb joins us back at the end. But thank you for that update, Deb. Um, all right, so now I'd like to pass over to uh, Dr. Chris Cooper, Director of Pediatrics at Bowen Health, to provide a pediatric update.
2: Thanks a lot, Bianca. Um, thank you very much for having me this morning. It's lovely to be with you. Um, I just wanted to highlight a couple of um, pertinent things to paediatrics um, today. Um, I think the first um, first thing I wanted to highlight was about return to school. I've been getting more questions from my patients uh, and their parents about whether it's safe for their children to go back to school. And um, the I've been guided by a guideline that was put out by the um, Australian and New Zealand Children's Oncology Group. They've done a really good Um, summary um, uh, and sort of question and answer um, uh, document that I can forward on to Bianca that can be available that I think actually informs general discussions about uh, with parents about most kids going back to school. Schools have been advised and school principals have been advised that um, the children with complex medical needs, their parents and carers are urged to seek medical advice from their health practitioner to support informed risk assessment and decision making regarding the suitability of on-site education for their child. So you may get um, people coming and asking you questions about that. To help you inform that, um, really, as Deb said, currently there's very low numbers of new cases being diagnosed each day, despite us having one of the highest per capita testing rates in the world. And that suggests that there's very low rates of community transmission. uh, and the oncology group actually have recommended to their patients that um, that it is safe for all siblings and the vast majority of pediatric oncology and bone marrow transplant patients to return to school so that implies that if they' they're pretty much almost the, the riskiest group in terms of immunocompromised kids that you see if they're happy and recommending that they can attend school then then it's it sort of um, uh, by extrapolation, then the rest of the kids, you, you would imagine, uh, are fine to go to school. Um, and the reasoning, the reasoning behind that is that the evidence suggests that most immunocompromised children are not at significantly higher risk of severe COVID disease than their age-matched peers. Um, the very low rates of community transmission mean the risk of contracting um, SARS-CoV-2 infection is currently very low. And then balancing that is it's not... In the children's best interest to exclude them from school indefinitely, when the evidence suggests that the risk of developing severe COVID is very low, and they base that a lot on what's happened over in Italy and America. And um, in America, um, they they're running a uh, sort of surveillance in their oncology um, hospitals in a cooperative way. And in America, there's only been 41 positive paed oncology patients. from actually from fifteen countries diagnosed with only one um, positive case in the whole of America, so it just tells you that that actually it's safe for kids to go back to school um, in the current environment, which might change if the community transmission um, altered. The other thing I wanted to emphasise is that Deb mentioned the new swab. Um, the anyone who's had a nasopharyngeal swab, I had one last week, knows that it's a pretty noxious. Um, I don't know. I haven't. Uh, tested the new one, but um, I imagine um, doing an, having to do a nasal swab rather than a nasopharyngeal swab, maybe potentially less noxious to kids. I asked our um, uh, uh, nurse educator um, about the, a few tips for swabbing children, and she, she gave the four main, main tips was really um, swab the child before um, the parent, because if the kids see that the parent, if you're doing both, if the parent um, child sees the parent is very distressed by the swab, that will upset them and make it harder to swab the, the um, child. So do the child first, um, making sure you use the um, uh, swaddling for infants and positioning and distraction for infants and children. So using all those sort of um, um, approaches that, that make it easier for children. Toddler age group, you might straddle the, the child on the chi- uh, parent's lap and um, do it from behind, as you might for a respiratory examination or other examinations that you do, and have the child in a hugging position on the, on the, chi- on the parent. Um, and get getting the parent to help you out and, and be there to comfort and, and hold the head rather than separating the child from the parent. So all basic paediatric sort of procedural um, approaches. Um, You need two people rather than one, um, in addition to the parent. Um, One to help hold, one to do the swab. And a tongue depressor definitely helps in doing the naso, doing the um, tonsillar swab as well. And basically, a lot of the nurses at Bowen Health North who've been doing a lot of this have just said how good the children have been, and better than most of the adults. and that the infants have actually been the easiest to do of all. So that's a few tips about um, swabbing. Um, One of the concerns I raised last week was about what I call collateral damage and the risk of that if we're so COVID focused and COVID anxious, um, um, and we're not seeing children face to face and doing a lot of it by telehealth, I think there's a real risk that our children with chronic illnesses and our kids with acute illnesses um, generally will get poorer um, medical care. So um, a little example of that um, is um, I think the, the newborns we're finding are going to the maternal health nurse less and there's less access to our maternal health um, care and they're getting less weights done. And so we're seeing that children are... are presenting to us uh, a little bit later with um, poor weight gain in the newborn period and failure to thrive. The other um, thing we've seen within our own hospital is um, several young um, parents, young mothers, um, being feeling very unsupported and anxious in their roles because the the normal supports from the maternal child health nurses and the um, play groups and other mechanisms that some of these isolated mothers um, rely on in the first few weeks is not there. So I think there's risk of um, sort of comorbidity of um, particularly in the perinatal period. Um, we're also still seeing all our kids with type 1 diabetes and cystic fibrosis but doing a lot of that by telehealth which isn't as good. So we're conscious we're trying to maintain our um, contact with that those patients and we're starting to see pretty much everybody now face-to-face rather than telehealth as the community transmission has dropped, and I would encourage um, you all to do the same. Um, Questions have come in regarding, you know, whether you should swab children with asthma, um, croup, bronchiolitis. I mean, with the current um, sort of recommendations of, of swabbing people with fever or respiratory symptoms, I think the simple answer is yes. But we all know it's all more complex than that. And where you swab them, who swabs them, and how you swab them, or where, who, and how you assess them, I think really depends on all the variables that, that exist in your practices and in your towns that you are in, in, in terms of the ability to cohort, ability to isolate, ability to have PPE, and also, very importantly, the, the expertise of who's assessing these children, whether it's over the phone via telehealth or face to face. So I think we just need to think about the general principles um, of PPE, general principles of triage, general principles of the importance of medical examination and assessment, and put them into the mix when you're making decisions in your area or in your practice. Um, I think a lot of the stuff we've talked about over the last few weeks is about guidelines. It's not about absolutes with this PPE. It's not about absolutes with how you triage or approach people. And guidelines are just guidelines. And guidelines plus common sense actually gives you the best outcome. So you as general practitioners know your patients, know your own staff, and you've got to manage your your own anxieties, staff's anxiety, patient's anxiety, as well as the real risks of of COVID um, transmission and just other illnesses. And I think... Um, having the approach of guidelines plus common sense gives you the best outcome, I think is is a good approach. So with that, I'll, I'll probably stop. Happy to take questions as we go through and happy to pass on that um, guidelines that I spoke about, about return to school, um, which actually might be really um, helpful if you get questions in the next few weeks from your parents and um, patients. Thanks.
0: And that's the end of the panel presentation for the session. The Q&A involved the case presentation of a family with a positive pertussis in a mother and uh, concerned about the impact of uh, pertussis on infection on her five-year-old autistic son. Discussion involved appropriate management and the RCH guidelines for pertussis are included in the Project ECHO post-session email. Along with discussion of respiratory panel testing at this time, the topic of children from families with vulnerabilities, whether it's in the child or the family, was discussed. And the important role of uh, advocacy played by GPs in response to not only this remote learning environment and uh, wish to return to on site learning, and also potentially with return to on site learning was discussed. And here's Chris Cooper's response.
2: I'll just um, back up what you said. Um... Bianca, often um, we need to be advocates for these kids and families, and as a GP, um, you've probably got inside knowledge in terms of the fun- how this mum functions and the background medical um, problems that really the school don't always have or can't always um, interpret. Um, if you know the situation, then I think a phone call from yourself would make all the difference, and I think schools appreciate that. Generally, um, my experience is I've seen lots of kids. I see lots of kids with vulnerabilities, and I've been actually impressed with some of the schools how they've reached out to these families and actually proactively pulled them into school. So, um, and that's I've, I've seen a couple of kids this week via telehealth from Colac, and and particularly the Catholic schools out in Colac, the primary, both the primary. Um, school and Trinity, the secondary school, have actually on a number of occasions um, uh, seen that families are struggling and got the kids um, back into school early. So I think um, I've actually been reasonably positive about the way that I've seen um, some of these families with vulnerabilities being allowed to go back to school earlier. Um, Kids with special needs, I think, are going back earlier um then uh, along with year 11s and 12s and preps and grade ones are going back as well and a lot of the special schools are actually having the kids there once a once a week at the moment even if they there isn't a great degree of vulnerability within the family um it's a real mixed bag i think some kids are really thriving at, at home and families are sort of brought closer together but i think um you know uh, there's a lot that are, are struggling i saw a mum Today uh, earlier in the week, who hadn't been out of her pajamas for two weeks, she told me, and, and didn't want to go on the video telehealth because they all just got up at eleven o'clock in the morning. The whole family with three three kids, two at primary school and one in high school. So I think I think in terms of how people are coping, um, real mixed bag. Um, but I think we can we can make a difference by advocating as Bianca.
0: And to continue this conversation, please join us next week as we speak further about uh, return to school and remote learning, complex family stresses at this time. Uh, and now Deb Friedman gives us the rapid five question and answers at the end. Um, hi again. Everyone asked a question about
1: um, how you make the decision between referring, and, and I guess this is a local Geelong question, so I apologise to people outside of Geelong about whether you refer them to Cadinia or to the Acute Respiratory Assessment Clinic. You know, at, at the current time, you could do either of them. I guess the thing to mention is that the Acute Respiratory Assessment Clinic, currently it's planned to be closed at the end of May. Now, of course, that could be subject to change if there is an increase in cases, but the thought is that it's probably not viable to remain open for the longer term. I will keep everybody updated about that. I've sort of highlighted um, to the administration some of the potential concerns about closing it, which will mean, you know, an increased number of ED presentations possibly. But that's um, they're going to have to determine whether or not it's financially viable to keep it open if there's a limited number of people presenting. And I guess that this will be the same for many clinics as we move forward we're in an uncertain time frame now and it's unclear what the next few months are going to look like in terms of new cases and so that's really going to determine the viability of a lot of clinics but right now john i think you could easily go either way and i think you'll get um good service at both places i don't want to speak for tim but i know that they're you know they'll be responsive to referrals
2: yeah, no, we would be, and that's, uh, it's just handy if you've got a complex patient to send us through a, uh, a quick referral with some um, clinical details in it, like past history and medications. But apart from that, it's, it's also important because it tells us who the GP is so we can feedback. We haven't done that well, and we've um, discussed that yesterday, so we're going to improve our uh, re- re- commit, um, dialogue back to the GPs.
0: Um, and
1: I just wanted to respond to a question from Catherine Pye. I'm really sorry, Catherine, I did see this question before, but I forgot to comment on it. Um, we have heard of some places that are offering testing with a very short turnaround time of perhaps an hour. I am not aware of laboratories, certainly that we utilize, that are capable of doing that. There is a There's a sort of variation in the types of platforms that are used in the lab and the turnaround time. But typically the larger labs in Melbourne, um, I do not believe are using um, a platform with such a quick turnaround time. Um, I think we're going to learn a lot more about this and certainly if people shop around and find that they're able to get quicker turnaround somewhere else, um, it would be great to know that I suppose I'm some somewhat influenced by sort of our local pathology providers um, so yeah and then jane asked a question about workload at different clinics um, i'll get tim to comment on what their workload is through a morning but at the acute respiratory assessment clinic they probably see a maximum of 20 patients in a day And at the acute respiratory assessment clinic we would see them on the same day if you call up if the gp refers somebody We'll see them that day, unless you perhaps call at 5pm, in which case we might make it the next morning. And the testing is done, if it's a weekday, we'll get the result that same day. Um, So just to let you know now, of course, that's a great service. I don't know how much longer it'll stay um, open for. Um, Joe Spencer asked a question about a patient returning to the US and whether or not there was a role for serological testing. I guess what you—I guess I'm interpreting your question as saying—is it a good idea to get serological testing done to prove whether or not the person has already been infected? Um, I, unless there was a history of a very consistent illness, and you thought that this was um, going to be of importance to the patient, I wouldn't do it. If a person had not had a consistent clinical illness, I don't think I'd go about doing serological testing, especially because. We're uncertain about what the significance of having an IgG positivity might mean. We don't know whether it confers any long-lived immunity. And this person going back to the US is going back to a very high prevalence um, region and the risk of um, of infection again would still be there.
0: All right, so we're racing against the clock now. I'm gonna finish off um, by quickly um, responding to the poll. So in the poll, we asked, where a child presents under five with choriza and shortness of breath, what PPE would you wear, Deb? So PPE for under five, respiratory assessment for choriza, shortness of breath in an under five at this time, what PPE would be required? Uh, uh, My my thinking would be um, a surgical mask. And gloves. And gloves. And if they had a fever, would that change your management in terms of what, sorry, would that change what you choose to wear if you found out through the examination? Would you feel like you needed different PPE?
1: No, I don't think so, especially because I think first of all the surgical mask and hand hygiene are the best protection that you need. The gown is, you know, additional and, and probably it's, you know, not not that important in the whole scheme of infection transmission. I think a surgical mask and hand hygiene with or without glove use or stress, um, would be the things that I would use for a paediatric assessment, a paediatric, a febrile paediatric patient. Okay, thank you. And
0: apologies, sorry, Lee, your question regarding children of immunocompromised parents, should they be excluded from school?
2: Yeah, look, my um, quick answer to that would be... um uh, in the current environment, no, the children should not be excluded from school. I think it's probably worth um, giving advice to the parent about keeping themselves safe. So that's good hand hygiene, social distancing, not um, fraternising with the other parents that drop off and things like that. So I think, you know, good practical measures would keep that person safe. Um, and then obviously a low threshold for swabbing those around them um, in a cocoon sort of uh, protection type approach.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, Chris. Now, with apologies, we've got one minute to go. I'm going to pass to Matt Dixon. I recognise that people may have to rush off to their busy day of work. Um, We're going to hear from Kate um, Graham for Pathways. I'd like to let you know that Fiona Quigley's popped in the evaluation in the chat, so please do respond to that. I'm particularly keen to find out about who else you'd like to hear from and what we're going to cover next week. Um, So thank you to Matt. And so I'll pass over to Matt Dixon now. If you could take yourself off mute and please respond. And thank you everyone for coming and we hope to see you next week. Thank you to Chris and to Deb um, for coming today and to all our participants.
2: Uh, So in order to not run over time, all I'll say at the moment is that uh, we're meeting with the uh, GP respiratory uh, clinics in the morning. So we'll seek um, some clarity about assessment and all of that. So that's probably all I, I should say at the moment.
0: Thank you, Matt. And Kate? Just in terms of health pathways, um, we should have the electronic
1: prescribing um, health pathway up um, and that's going to help us in the, with the interim electronic prescribing arrangements just to help people get their heads around all the regulations and what we actually need to be documenting from that regards until it transitions to the formal e-prescribing, which hopefully will be happening sooner rather than later. And next week I'll um, keep you a bit more up to date with um, what we've got on our referral pages um, just to sort of help simplify some of their um, complexity around um, where to send people and how to send them in and what what we need to do really in advance, Um, similar to sort of that booking in arrangement, who needs referrals in first, who needs appointments versus the walk-in testing clinics. So we'll chat a bit
0: more about that next time. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much, Kate. Okay, thank you all. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. Um, Take care until then.